This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This was a really, really dramatic thing uh, to see yesterday. And I, I, it was after our show ended, this data came out about employment insurance in Ontario. And for all the talk, I don't want to lay this at the doorstep of any one particular government, uh, because they all sort of, you know, they're all part of the, the economic engine, right? What the municipal government does to allow people to coexist, um, survive through difficult times. The province has a huge impact on the economy. The federal government's got a huge impact on the economy. We had Ontario Liberal leader Bonnie Crombie on earlier this week, and I think her, I don't know that it's a set-up strategy, but it makes some sense to me that she makes the point, are you better off economically after six years of, uh, after close to six years of, of Doug Ford being the premier? And that's the route to go for Bonnie Crombie if she's looking to sway votes away from the popularity of the Conservatives. There's a new poll out from Abacus Data I want to touch on a little later on in the morning um, that just shows that even even with a little bit more growth for the Liberals, Doug Ford is still, he is in no danger of losing a majority government at this particular point right now. So it's going to take some head scratching from the Liberals and the NDP, and there's tons of time to do it to figure out how to how to wrestle that majority away. But Crombie's on the right track here because so many of your economic problems and our economic problems combined get laid at the doorstep of the federal government. Why is that? Because the opposition's done a great job of framing it that way. The carbon tax isn't going to make or break you. But the reason you complain about the carbon tax is because the opposition and Pierre Polyev specifically have done such an amazing job of bringing it up and tying it to economic hardship. There is also the case and it's a fair one, that the carbon tax keeps rising and uh, it has no impact whatsoever on the environment. It has no impact on climate change. There's no real way to tangibly connect or link the carbon tax to a change in climate and weather-related incidents in where we live. I keep hearing the phrase climate crisis and I keep hearing the phrase climate emergency and I'm sorry, that's not what we have here. Not even close. And if you're struggling financially, it ain't one of the biggest 10 or 12 issues in your life is worried about climate uh, right now. There's just no way. But the, the opposition's done a really good job of framing it. But when I see these numbers, they do leap out at me. And I do think the next time people are able to corral the premier, they should ask him about it. The number of Canadians receiving EI soared in 2023. Unemployment rates are up. But in Ontario specifically, and th- and there's you can't just walk in and get EI. There are bumpers that allow you to qualify for it. The, the idea is let's get you back on your feet. Let's pay you while you're unemployed. And there's a reason employed people pay into EI provincially. But it went up by 34,000 in 2023. And that's a 32% increase. And just to give you the raw numbers, because I think those matter more, 140,000 Ontarians were on EI benefits in December. So that's going into Christmas. Usually there's more in January, February. So there's some part-time retail jobs that come up. There's some full-time retail jobs that come up. But there were 106,000 people a year before in December of 22 that were receiving income support. 34,000 in Ontario needed it more. And you remember the frustration that Doug Ford had with in the spring of 22 with going, guys, we can't do this forever. And he was right, meaning keep the economy shut down. We can't walk around, uh, you know, wearing masks. We can't not socialize. We can't have restaurants. We can't have retail not open. 
And he was right. And by the way, I bring up the opposition parties. It hurt them dramatically that they really had no response for that. And they were almost like, yes, we can. We need to keep things closed up longer. Doug Ford said, no, you know, it's not going to happen. And we're pushing forward. And that was the right tactic in terms of practicality. And it was the right thing to do politically because he won a walloping result in the election in uh, June of 2022. But there's some ripple effect, right? Interest rates have gone up. More people asking for employment insurance. And again, in this story in the Toronto Star, a couple, uh, well, it was late yesterday um, that I saw just after lunchtime, higher employment's just going to keep going. More people are going to apply for EI. We need desperately for interest rates to drop. And remember as well, population growth driven by immigration that also contributes to the rising employment rate. Canada took in 1.13 million immigrants, the highest such figure on record, and almost half a million more than the previous year. So if many of them are staying in Ontario, we may not have the jobs to match. You've probably been like I've been, and you've seen photos and video of job fairs in Ontario, people looking to work at McDonald's or Tim Hortons, and there's nothing not admirable with that. You work where you can work. Everybody feels that innate sense within themselves that I'll do anything at any time to make sure I can put food on the table for my family. We've all felt that at a certain point in time in our lives. You do have to work to live, but we're adding more people than we have jobs for. That's what these numbers tell me. And most of these experts in the story say we don't see a slow in the rise of the unemployment rate, even if interest rates are going to slide down a little bit. Knock a quarter percent off here, maybe a half percent off some month in the summer. But bottom line, more people seeking job employment insurance benefits as they lose their jobs or they go full time rather to part time. Really quick on this. Uh, yesterday morning, we drove, told you about a driver uh, who crashed on the DVP ramp while trying to get away from police. They still don't know where he is. And I have a ton of questions about this. This was a New York uh, license plated car. And it crashed into a guardrail on the DVP around 3.20 in the morning yesterday. I've had two moments where I've seen things on the way in um, coming down the DVP towards Lakeshore, towards here at Chorus Key in the 3 to 4 a.m. hours. And police tried to pull the car over. The driver wasn't pulling over. He crashes into the guardrail. He's the passenger, female driver. They get the female caught. She's under arrest. We don't know anything about her. She tried to run, but they caught her. And this guy is still on the loose. But how long do you, <laughs> how long do you look? This is not uh, Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Okay, this wasn't a guy on death row who was accused of uh, murdering his wife. It's not Dr. Richard Kimball out there. But how lo- it's a fascinating question. I'd love to hear from a police officer who will tell me, how long do you keep looking? What are you waiting for in terms of tips? Can you identify who the person is? And is he wanted for something that's a lot more serious than not stopping for a cop on a traffic stop? And smashing his car into the into the guardrail on the DVP. I think those are really interesting questions. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Eager to have our next guest on. Let's zero in on something that just jumped off the page for me. And that's the amount of renters in Toronto that are in arrears. The CMHC puts out an annual rental market report. And they showed in 2023, 19.6% of rental units were in arrears. Daniel Falk is a realtor and he joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you back on the show. Happy to be here. You described it. You described it as a mind blowing stat. It is that our national average is uh, is under eight percent. Vancouver is only at four percent. Toronto looks like we're in some trouble here. 
Yeah, I mean, it really does. I think it's uh, it's a pretty serious reflection of just that cost of living crisis that a lot of people are feeling, I think, um, and that rents have just escalated. Um, obviously, budgets are getting tighter with inflation. Um, so to see that that jump up that much and it be so pronounced in Toronto as an outlier among the other cities in Canada, is just it's really scary to see, honestly. What's making so what makes this city unique, right? Because there are certainly cost of living challenges in Vancouver. There's been a huge housing bubble there. Um, I'd make the case Ottawa. Rents are expensive in all these cities. Uh, I, I think we all were really surprised that Toronto is so significantly above those other big metropolitan areas. Yeah, so I think a big one when you look at affordability is um, price to income or rent to income. Um, and Vancouver would have similar challenges. So it, it is it is a bit of an anomaly and it's a bit, a bit hard to understand why they're not seeing as much of a, an issue. I guess if I were to, if I were to guess as to why that is, it's because we have so much new supply in Toronto mm. and um, and a lot of that new supply is priced at market and a lot of or anything built after 2018 isn't subject to rent control. And so a lot of those units could actually be, you know, I mean, landlords could be functionally increasing the rent too much that it makes it within the realm of unaffordability for a tenant. They're just not paying because our landlord and tenant board is is so backed up. And that could be kind of the final issue is, you know, our, our landlord and tenant system is performing so poorly that um, there isn't a ton of recourse for rents that are in arrears where, you know, if a landlord, if a, if a tenant is in arrears, it's going to take them months and months and months to resolve that issue. And um, it's just more likely to show up in data because it hasn't been resolved, right? If it takes so, oh, or, so, so yeah, yeah our, our slow system uh, means we're going to see bigger numbers because I, I think it's noteworthy um, and a couple other realtors have pointed out the length of arrears is not shown. Like it's really significant if yeah. you're seven months behind on your rent. It's not as significant if you're a month behind. For sure, yeah. And so the methodology is really a question mark in CMHC's report, and I've reached out to them to get an understanding for what that methodology is. Because if it's really just like a filing of an L1 form, then you know there's no way to know whether or not a, a portion of those have been resolved. But I, I do think a big thing is, you know, if, if it's being if these arrears are being dealt with more promptly in other uh, areas, then you know Toronto it could just be the the impact really could just be that these arrears are still in arrears two or three months later. And that's why it's showing up in the data more substantially than in Vancouver, as an example. And, and an L1 form in simplest terms, Daniel, is, is just uh, an application to get rid of a tenant for non-payment? Uh, yeah, it's the, typically just the first one to show that they're um, behind on rent. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is really um, a, a significant thing. Is there anything the province uh, can do? I know there's, you know, oftentimes fingers get pointed at municipalities on, on these cases, but obviously landlord tenant is a lot more to do. I remember thinking this when I watched the big Pierre Polyev video a few months ago is he's really not talking about landlord tenant disputes for the province. He's not digging in on some of the premiers where we've got a really slow system and Ontario has a very slow system. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think that um, it's no secret that the landlord and tenant board in in the province of Ontario is probably one of the worst in in the country, if not the world. Um, oh. And I think, you know, I think if we can get caught up on some of the, like, it's a very fair board, honestly. It's just not able to process all of the mm. demand because there's so many landlords and so many tenants now, and the population is growing so quickly that there's just a huge backlog of disputes and, and it leaves room for bad actors on both sides. I mean, I know you were just mentioning rent evictions earlier on the show. Yeah. And, um, and you know, and then there are tenants who um, play the system as well. And, and so if we can get rid of those negative externalities, I actually think it could help make the market better for everyone. Um, but it's, it's not just like, a, you know, a lot of landlords want to blame tenants and a lot of tenants want to blame landlords. The reality is that 
um, there's there's probably bad actors on both sides, um, mm. and we just need to create a system that that controls for that more promptly. Uh, Daniel's got a website called realist.ca. That's R-E-A-L-I-S-T.ca. And you can find out a lot more about uh, the system, about the buying, about the renting, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks very much for your insight today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. You bet. Daniel Falk joining us on Toronto Today. I find that so intriguing. And obviously, you know, he mentions the LTB. That's the landlord tenant board. And if the cases are super slow moving, they're going to pile up. And we've talked about this even with judges, judges and and who gets hired and who gets uh, uh, installed as a judge by the Ford government has been such a big story. I want to touch on that after the break. But a lot of this is interrelated. And again, you want fodder if you're the opposition parties. You hit the provincial government on stuff like this. It's not just about the economy. It's about the bureaucracy that slows down resolving these cases. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Because we have so much new supply in Toronto, and a lot of that new supply is priced at market, and anything built after 2018 isn't subject to rent control, and so landlords could be functionally increasing the rent too much that it makes it within the realm of unaffordability for a tenant. They're just not paying because our landlord and tenant board is so backed up. And that could be kind of the final issue is there isn't a ton of recourse for rents that are in arrears. If a tenant is in arrears, it's going to take them months and months and months to resolve that issue. Yeah. Talking five months is the average wait for a landlord tenant board hearing in Ontario. Um, And I bet you that number, again, doesn't say static. It's only getting worse. More complaints, not enough tribunals, not enough uh, adjudicators means a lot longer wait. Um, I want to get your calls if you're a landlord in uh, Toronto or the GTA. I want to get your calls if you're a tenant. I'd love to get your calls if you're a parent of a future renter. We were just talking about it on Think Tank with Stephanie Smythe and that sort of boomerang generation um, of kids coming home again after they've lived on their own. We all want them to have that sort of time of your life. And I waved my arms in the air during uh, me saying time of your life for college and university. I want them to have similar experiences that I had in college and university, but then there comes a practicality. You have to work uh, to live on your own. And I, I know there's videos circulating. We're going to actually play one on the show tomorrow this is, uh, about this guy who makes this video and it's got a ton of reaction to it saying, I can't believe I have to work to make money and just to stay ahead and have the basics in life. And I'm like, you just you don't think that you should have to do that. You think things should be given to you. And I will not, I will defend people born in the 90s and the 2000s and the millennials and the Gen Z's. You, you're getting a bad rap because of a lot of people who are doing stuff for clicks and likes. You're getting a bad rap. There's some really uh, our generation got it, too. Ah, your generation watch too much TV. You're on your computers too much. You're not interacting enough. Well, we did just fine. I think we did just fine. But I would make the point that if you're renting now in this scenario, you've got a huge amount of questions about where this is all going to go. I'd love to hear from you if you're a landlord, if you're a tenant. Does that number shock you or do you go, no? If you're a landlord, you know other landlords. If you're a tenant, you know other tenants. And maybe what's working for you right now just isn't for somebody else. But the numbers are shocking from the CH, uh, CMHC. Um the annual rental market report shows 19.6% of rental units in Toronto are in arrears. Now, again, some of it might be the adjudication and the slowness of the landlord-tenant board. And that, again, we were just talking about Doug Ford's popularity. Someone in Queen's Park, hello, liberals, hello, NDP. We know you listen. 
that's something you hit the premier with and you say, fix this. It's getting worse, not better. And you can step in and make the difference right now. So you got high inflation, rents are growing faster than incomes, and households are really struggling. And landlords, by the way, have been hurt by this as well, by bad tenants, bad scenarios, and people trying to griff them uh, and stay in their in their rent knowing, stay there in buildings, renting uh, rooms or renting entire houses, knowing they can tear the place up, not pay anything, and then just move on to the next one. Anybody see Michael Keaton in Pacific Heights? This is a movie he made after Batman. He rents Melanie Griffiths and uh, Matthew Modine's fine apartment in San Francisco. Go watch it. And that's, that kind of stuff is happening all over the place. Only it's like with 22-year-old kids. I just said I wouldn't impugn the younger generation, and I just did. Let's get to Jack. Jack, you're on 640 Toronto in Toronto today. Thanks for the call. You go right ahead. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So uh, I'm a property manager uh, all across Ontario. Okay. And uh, I can see that definitely rents have gone up. Um, dramatically, but uh, people have to keep in mind that the costs of landlords have gone through the roof. Their taxes are up, their mortgages, some of them are up thousands of dollars a month on a house. And are they capped on raising rent, Jack? That seems to be the common thought. M- m- many, of, many of them are. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, 2.5% when their mortgage has gone up, you know, $100 a month. I mean, it's a joke. Um, and ultimately what's happening is the, the little guys who make up the majority of the supply in Ontario, mm-hmm. it's not the big guys, the little guys uh, who have, you know, one or two houses or a condo here, a duplex there, they're getting squeezed out of the market and they're being forced to sell. And uh, it's going to hurt ultimately the supply. And, you know, we talk a lot. So the, let me, I, I just get clarify. I won't cut you off. These are sort of the mom and pop landlords. There's a lot more. Yeah. There just isn't the incentive to stay in the game anymore. By my estimation, there's about 450,000 private rentals yeah. uh, in Ontario, uh, which is significantly more than what, you know, the apartment buildings that we always think of as the big landlords. Um, and, uh, you know, they're being, they're being squeezed out of the market. And more often than not, you know, we talk about rent control, but very often when, when te- landlords jack up rents on units that are not under rent control, it's often to get rid of a bad tenant. And tenants have to realize, especially the millennial generation, um, which maybe I'm kind of part of a little bit. Um, what year were you born? You know, when, I'm sorry. What year were you born? I was born in I was born in '87. Okay. So so people have to realize that they have to have a good relationship with their landlord because when you complain about every stupid little thing and it costs the landlord money to fix every stupid little thing, I'm not saying that landlords shouldn't take care of their properties. So when you're driving your landlord nuts to fix a light bulb. Like you're just putting yourself in a situation where the landlord is just going to have a bad taste in their mouth. And when it comes time to jack up the rent, if they're not under rent control, they're going to put up the rent a thousand bucks on you just to get rid of you. Not because the market is going to demand that. I mean, I would have rented from 1990 to 2000, Jack, and we just knew we just knew to pick our battles, whether I was on my own or with six roommates or with a girlfriend. We just knew where to pick our battles and to your point, not be emailing the guy every two days going, can you make this better? This is broken. This is a problem. You got to pick your battles and, and spots. It's a huge problem. And ultimately markets dictate the rents. I've seen many of my clients who have tried to raise rents by obscene amounts of money because their costs have gone up and their units are vacant because the market simply won't bear it. Markets ultimately dictate the price. Yes. Are there a lot of people that are willing to pay a lot of money to live in Toronto? For sure. Have students caused a huge problem in outlying communities like Kitchener, Waterloo, London, you know, all these places, anywhere near a college or within driving distance or, tra- or transit of a college? Mm-hmm. It's a huge problem. Have you got, have you got properties in, that you manage in Kitchener, Waterloo? 
Oh yeah. What's and it you, like? It's it's crazy out there. You have no problem getting putting a house up for rent for three to four thousand dollars. You'll get a group of seven or eight students, and they'll move in. By and large, they'll take okay care of the property. Not great, but okay enough that a landlord's willing to you know bite bite the bullet for mm-hmm. uh, the extra maintenance they might have to put in once these tenants move out. They're never late on their rent. These tenants work very hard outside of yeah. school. You know, they're working, they're driving Uber, they're, they're, they're doing everything. They're working for Amazon. I mean, you see all these, you know, companies, you know, and these guys getting out of these trucks for Amazon, they're all students. And they're all, all here on student visas for the most part. And, um, and uh, they're, they're driving the rents through the roof in a lot of these outlying communities where you used to be able to rent a house for 2000 2500 That same house today could easily be three or $4,000 a month. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Hey, Jack, I got to move on. Thank you so much for the insight and call anytime. I loved having you on uh, and I wanted to roll that out and, and get the answers to those questions. I think a lot of people have. We're getting questions in via text for you. So we should probably have you back as a guest more often. Really insightful stuff. John, thanks very much for waiting. I appreciate it. You're on Toronto today. Go right ahead. Yeah, how you doing? Good, thank you. So, so I'm a landlord, like a mom and pop landlord. I own about three properties, and I currently have one that I rent downtown Toronto. And the rent that I receive is twenty eight fifty a month. The carrying cost for that unit is almost thirty six hundred dollars a month. You're losing money every, every month, right? Every month I'm losing money. For the last two years, I've been losing money on this property. So guess what I'm going to do now? I'm going to put it up for sale, cash out my money, and call it a day. Since we're just chatting here, how much will you ask for the house? Well, it's a condo. I'd ask about 900000 And you'll get it, won't you? I, I'd get it easy. It's in a prime location. I'd get it. So you, if you wanted to raise rent, can you on the people that are in it right now? Well, I have good tenants, right? So I have very good tenants. Very, very good tenants. The yeah, but you'd, is, like, you'd like them to pay more. <laughs> well, but, you, but you can't. How are you going to ask them for 30 I know. I know. And it's, you know, like something's got to be done. The mortgage went from $1,800 a month to... $2,900 a month, just the mortgage. The maintenance fee went from 540 to 610 Like, it just keeps, everything keeps just going up. And then people complain about the, the landlord. It's not the landlord. We don't want to get rich. We're not getting rich. I've been losing money for the last two years. Yeah. And this is like, I'll give you, again, my little window into this. I mentioned this on Think Tank, but it was ages ago, so I'll say it again. I got a kid that's that's university-bound next year. We hope anyway. Keep those marks up. Study hard. But Toronto's, Toronto is he wants to, he wants to be a TMU. He really does. He's got a program there he really, really likes. But uh, we want Western to be an option. We want York is actually an option as well. Um, he'd probably save after residence. Residence is kind of flat, which is nice. Like your residence at a TMU or U of T isn't going to be that much more than a Western, a McMaster, a Laurier right now. Second year, it's where it all changes. And a lot of parents listening are nodding their heads in the car right now or banging their fists on the steering wheel going exactly. Your kid's going to residence first year and then they're coming home because they can't afford to live out on their own second year. There's no meal plan. There's no, it's not subsidized. There's not that same sense of community. There's a little more risk, right? Security-wise as well. Kids are coming home in second, third, and fourth. It's something I never had to do. I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I'd come home the occasional summer from Western, but I wouldn't have wanted to do it. But when I told my kid, like the difference in a one-bedroom, not that he'd get that second year between Toronto and London's about 800 bucks a month. Like that's ninety that that's ninety six hundred dollars for the year because you got to get a twelve month lease. His eyes about popped out, but it's good. We're telling seventeen and eighteen year olds what's what. Matthew, thanks very much for the phone call. I appreciate you waiting. Go right ahead. Hi, Matthew. Go right ahead. 
Oh, hi there. Yeah. Uh, thank you for, uh, for taking my call. Sure, of course. Um, I'm a small mom-and-pop landlord. I've got one property that has three units in it. Um, I've been fortunate because I bought it years ago, and I had great tenants while I was living in it. I decided to move out uh, and move into another house, so now I rent this place out. Um, since renting it out, I've had one tenant that decided just on his own he wasn't going to pay rent. It's been a year since he hasn't paid rent. Uh, he hasn't paid utilities. He's damaged the property inside and out. Um, he's put holes in the wall. He's written all kinds of profanity on the wall. Hey, is he on the, his own or does he have roommates there? Uh, he's on his own. Okay, I'm so the owner. Okay. Uh, and I've got two other tenants, a family upstairs and another single guy downstairs, which pay the rent. They're great people, and they're disturbed by this one individual yeah. at 2, 3 in the morning, yelling and screaming, throwing things, slashing cabinets and whatnot. It took me uh, nine months to get into the landlord and tenant board, and then he caused another delay of two months. So the landlord and tenant board like bends over backwards for the tenants, not giving any consideration to the landlord. And then when you actually end up in the landlord and tenant board, then uh, in front of the educator, they're giving all kinds of leniency to the tenant just because. And so what ends up happening is the landlord loses out. I'm, lo I'm making a loss. Yeah. Then he, then he makes all kinds of allegations, you know, through CRA and whatnot about me, which are untrue, which costs me more money. And the result is I then think twice about wanting to rent it out again. It doesn't help that Olivia Chow adds more layers and layers of, uh, of, of uh, bureaucracy for in the benefit of the tenant and against the landlord. So what ends up happening is you get all these mom and pops who have yeah. rentals who want to offer properties to people to have a place to live because the government is saying, you know, we need more housing, but then they create the problem for the landlord, which ends up causing the landlord to walk away. No, no, no. You, you've got it. you got it exactly right. I want to get to it. I, I appreciate that. And I want to get to a couple more stories really quick. Um, let me get to uh, Stephen. Stephen, thanks for the phone call. I want to get you in before we break. Tell us your story. Yeah. So, so two things I just hearing the previous caller there. So my daughter is, is renting a place. Uh, turns out the guy lied. It's an illegal uh, apartment. Uh, he's got two big dogs upstairs. He literally, uh, you know, she's got to walk out downstairs. I guess he had a tarp on his, uh, on his patio up deck and washed five months worth of dog poop into the backyard. Um, if she what? Calls five law, months? Yeah, if a couple weeks is bad. Law, she could be a, uh, she has to be out in 30 days, eight months with the housing tribunal. I'm I'm renting a condo after I sold uh, sold my place. Literally, if if my if my neighbor rents the same thing, it's gone up by fifteen thousand dollars in in two years. So I don't understand. Like that's fifteen thousand dollars for the same apartment in two years. Like there's got to be some kind of control here. Yeah. So it's taken her nine months to even see the housing tribunal. And with, with me, I mean, how does someone afford with, with minimum wage, let's say the average family owner, uh, that's like, what, what is that, uh, before tax money? 
you know, seven sixteen thousand dollars difference for the same apartment. I, I can't even fast, Stephen. Again, like I'm walking into the world that that the world where you live right now with with my kids and their advancing age, um, eighteen and almost sixteen. And I can't imagine it. And I know some parents are, again, banging the steering wheel, screaming at the radio, saying, if you want to let them go to residence, fine. Let them experience that first year. Bring them home after that. Give them the money you'd spend on rent. They can still socialize. They can still, like, we have a lovely basement. Live downstairs. And at the same time, let me give you the cash or some variation of it, some percentage of it, for a freaking down payment someday. Like, again, these aren't the conversations that we had to have with our parents. And by the way, we were afraid to piss landlords off. I got to read this text really quick. Small landlord in Brampton currently have delinquent tenants that haven't paid rent in 11 months and also not paid utilities. 11 months. I'm in the process of evicting them through LTB uh, for non-payment of rent. These professional tenants are taking advantage of the broken LTB system. I had to wait five months after filing to get a hearing while my freeloader tenants continue to live for, for free. And that landlord listening to our show, texting the show, will never get his or her money back. They will never get that money back. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right, Francesca Grossa, uh, Grossa in a minute, um, and I'm excited to talk to her. She was listening to uh, my chat with Jagmeet Singh yesterday, who we had on the federal leader of the NDP, and we were talking about pharmacare, but then it shifted, obviously, to a conversation about overall health care. And I find it interesting, one of the, the things that ca- came up not right out of that interview, um, but the idea from Ontario's health minister, Sylvia Jones, that they haven't yet decided to plunge all in. Um, and the potential is still there for Ontario to opt out of this liberal NDP pharmacare plan is quite interesting to me. Um, but you've heard me talk about health care before, and I know the system and I've lived in another country um, in the United States. I asked Jagmeet Singh about the concept that we're kind of here already with some two-tier aspects of it, and wait times for surgery is a big one. People getting seen in the emergency room and having to wait way longer than they ever ever before. I'm not sure money solves those issues. I pressed him on this, and here's some of what he said. This is something where I'm in a very firm position, and and I I do it for many reasons. When I look at the for-prof care, the evidence is so overwhelming that I, I reject it outright because for-prof care is costly. We know that and we see that evidence. And it just makes sense. If you've got to factor in profit, it costs more to deliver that care. And we've seen that in BC where private clinics were actually brought back into the public system because it was costing them more to spend money on someone going to a private clinic, which was charging them extra to factor in the profit. So they actually took in in BC, the the government bought uh, private clinics and made them public so that they didn't have to actually have that extra cost of the private clinic. The other thing that happens when you go for private care, people who have gone and will tell you this, you end up spending money out of pocket. No matter what they say, even if the government says, oh, we're going to cover your service, we're just going to send you to this private clinic, what happens is you get upsold and you end up spending money out of pocket. So it costs you more and then it costs the system more. And then the final thing is the outcomes are worse. Look at countries like America that spend the most money on private and public combined health care. And the outcomes are actually worse. You're getting less quality overall care. So I really believe in public system. But that's why we're looking at pharmacare, that part of the problems are we're the only country in the world that has a healthcare system that's universal, that doesn't include medication. That's some of the learnings I want to take in. Every other country has figured out. You go to a doctor, mm-hmm. your doctor is covered by your healthcare system. 
but the doctor prescribes you to take medication to stay healthy and you can't afford that, it really renders that visit kind of not really making a lot of sense if you can't do what the doctor is telling you to do. Okay, so that's the federal leader of the NDP, but you've heard me make the point many times, nobody else apes our system. Nobody else has our system. And there's many other countries that figured out how they can maintain a universal health care system, keep the public health care system, but allow patients choice. And we don't have that here in this country. Uh, Francesca Grasso is from Grasso McCarthy, a health policy firm, and she joins us now. So you're listening to that yesterday, whether you're in the car, you're at home, and uh, and your brain's about to explode. So here is your opportunity to counter some of what the federal leader of the New Democrats said, Francesca. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Hi. Well, good morning. And where do I begin? Uh, look, it's very selective reasoning. You know, I, I heard uh, Jagmeet Singh talk about how every other country has, you know, medication coverage. Well, let me tell you something. Every other publicly funded country in the world has had private surgical delivery clinics. We are the only place in the civilized world that does not. I'm not talking about the United States now. I am talking about places like the UK that gave the whole concept of Medicare to the world. They managed to do it in the 1990s under a labor government. The difference was that labor government sided with the patient not with the unions. And that's really what this is all about. We are still talking about public versus private in a very theoretical way. The fact of the matter is 60% of our healthcare system is privately delivered. The only publicly delivered services by and large are hospitals. You go to a lab or an x-ray clinic, you go to your family doctor, you know, all of these things are are privately delivered. Right. And the difference between us and the United States is that because we have a publicly funded healthcare system, these decisions to how much they're going to pay for services are negotiated by the provincial government. That is a very, very big difference than in the United States where people really do pay out of pocket. And I, I'll just you know, I want to get into the costs because yeah, me that too. really irks me when, when, when the statements are, are thrown around like we're paying more money to private clinics for the same services. And I will get into that. But I'll just end on, on this point. We have consistently, Canada and specifically Ontario, because these results really reflect Ontario more than any other province Quebec doesn't report. If you take a look at the Commonwealth Fund study that they have done year over year for decades. Mm. We consistently rate almost dead last on access to care. Okay, and we are being rated against other publicly funded healthcare systems as well as the U.S. The only country that is worse for us in access is the U.S. And by the way, we're not paying a lot less than other countries are paying. In fact, we're on the higher end of the scale. What so do you what do you what, yeah what do you wish was better messaging from our provincial government on yeah. this front? I don't I don't know that they explain this properly and there's a lot of slogans and sound bites we'll keep you paying with your health card not your credit card but eventually again when you follow up off a of surgery or you need something specific or you need um physio you do pay with your credit card unless you have a job with benefits someone is paying 
Well, we don't pay with with a credit card for for medically necessary and insured services. And it doesn't matter if you go to a private clinic and you have a cataract done or you go uh, to a um, to a hospital to have it done. If you are eligible to have your cataract done and you're prepared to take the lens that the government offers, you're not paying out of pocket. But the issue of cost is where I am most frustrated. I feel that the government has done a terrific job at messaging that care delayed is care denied and that we have a real problem with access. Never mind we have a publicly funded and it's universal and it's equitable. The fact is that there's nobody out there that would say we have good access to care because we don't. That being said, the idea that we are paying more to private clinics to do the same services is absolutely ridiculous. It is not true. There are entire departments in the government of Ontario that have to figure out exactly what the cost of a case is in a hospital. And they base the number that they give to the private sector on that. And usually they sharpen the pencils quite a bit. So let me give you a real example. We're paying private clinics $602 to do a cataract procedure, okay? Mm-hmm. What are we paying hospitals? Well, when I was in government, we actually did a costing exercise, and this would have been in the early 2000s. We were paying hospitals upwards of $900. The difference is, the problem is, we don't pay hospitals and private clinics the same way. Clinics get a lump sum amount per procedure, and hospitals, they pull funding from all different envelopes. The big Big costs are nursing costs, the cost of the facility, the people who are changing over the uh, the OR room and they're getting it ready, the bookers, etc. All of that in a hospital is under another budget item. So the problem is when Jagmeet Sim talk, talks about how, oh my God, you know, we're paying so much more to private clinics. You're comparing apples to oranges. You have to compare the real numbers and the real numbers are, of course, we're paying more in hospitals. Hospitals are the most expensive care centers. They are all hyper-unionized, which, by the way, it's a good thing because they're very difficult settings to work in. I'm not against unions. But understand that Jagmeet Singh's position and others, the Health Coalition, are coming firmly from a point of view of representing or backing the union concerns. The private sector isn't usually unionized. No, no. Um, I I got about a minute left, but I want to ask you if there's... If there's a way forward for even keeping healthcare dollars here, I'd, I'd reason that we could make up a fictitious case where someone has got to wait, you know, five months for a shoulder surgery replacement or even a critical heart surgery. In the meantime, people can't live with chronic pain. They can't work. They can't. Your life's basically on hold. They're going to Europe or they're going to the United States to get these things done faster. And all those healthcare dollars are flushed out of our country. What solves that? All right. What solves it is for the government to really double down on what they have enabled, which is pulling and decanting more services out of hospitals. In every other country in the world, hospitals are doing only acute episodic cases that are very complicated. They are not doing a lot of the stuff that we continue to do. A cataract is not even, for example, a surgery anymore. It's an injection. People get injections in their eyes every day in ophthalmologist's offices. I'll just add one more thing. This upselling uh, issue that uh, Singh talks about how, you know, you go to a private clinic and you're upsold. 
Patients are given choices. And let me tell you something. You get the same choices when you go into a public hospital. If you wanted to get a cataract in a public hospital, they would inform you that there are different kinds of lenses and these are your choices. And if you want you know, a lens that is going to enable you not to have glasses anymore, then yes, you are going to have to pay for it. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. I'll go you one better. The whole dental industry, Francesca, is upselling. you got to say no a bunch of times. And, and if you got kids getting right. braces, now, that's you not are... considered a publicly funded service, mind you. No, it's so not. But, but it tells you yeah. the consumer constantly. You buy a new car, you get a new phone, you got to say no sometimes. Like there's an inherent sure. responsibility as an adult to say, that's out of my means, no thank you. Uh, the healthcare wouldn't be any different. So wouldn't you agree uh, that it's good the patients have choice? If um, it's your eyes or your body, if if there's yes. something that's not insured, uh, shouldn't you be told? Yeah. You hey, you're preaching to the choir here, but you already know we got a big choir here. They're all dressed and ready to sing. So the big <laughs> the choir the choir's all here. I got a blast for now, but let's keep talking about this because I think it's important and I think we're only moving in one way towards this, and it better be to access for people who need it. Thanks so much for the time today. You bet. Take All right. Care. Thanks for listening to the show yesterday as well. That means a lot. Uh, Francesca Grosso.